Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Back in the 80s, one of Coke's great advertising campaigns was simply to say this, you can't beat the real thing. And they had a number of adverts, and they had um, big uh, transporters coming across the screen, and they had this red button, all these different flavors that were coming into existence back in the 80s. That's the uh, 1980s, not the 1880s. You can't beat the real thing. And Matthew in his Gospels has been doing something very, very similar. Matthew has been presenting to us Jesus as we're halfway through. It's good to have a pause and see where we've come from. Matthew's presenting to us Jesus as Savior and as Teacher as teacher and as saviour. What do I mean? Uh, Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, you see Jesus revealed as son of David. In Matthew 4, you have Jesus revealed as uh, the true Adam. And uh, throughout the, uh, the book of Matthew, there are these five times where Jesus is likened to Moses. Just as Moses wrote five books in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by God through the authority of the Spirit, controlling the pen, the quill of Moses, everything's recorded down there. Jesus is the new David. He's the one to whom David pointed to. He's the new Adam. Or Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He's also, he's the new Moses. And so just as Moses went up a mountain and uh, spoke the words of God, that's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, we've now got five times, five times in the book of Matthew, you've got these sentences Matthew 11:1. 1, as we look at our passage, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach. He's been teaching and preaching, sometimes up a mountain, sometimes on a plain. But five times, Matthew wants us to say, Jesus is the real thing. Not Coca-Cola versus Audi. It's a lot cheaper and a lot less nice. It's the real thing in the copy. But Jesus is the real thing, and Jesus to Matthew is saviour and teacher. But that's not all. John, uh, the Baptist that we meet in Matthew 11, has been struggling. And he simply asked this massive question. 
Are you the one who wants to come? Or should we expect someone else? To paraphrase Coca-Cola, Jesus, are you the real thing? Because uh, whenever I point to you, that's a click. Because John doesn't like surprises. He doesn't like upsets. Now, I love watching live sport. My Sky subscription is just coming to an end, so these sporting illustrations will plummet from now on, unless it's on iPlayer. There are three or four main narratives to any sporting event. There is the comeback. So there's Tiger Woods, bottom right-hand corner. It's kind of shiny. Could we get... Andy, maybe, could you get those a little bit closer? Thank you. You have the, the story of the comeback, whether it's a football league team, whether it's a, a, a boxer who's run out of money so they need to come out of retirement and uh, punch someone else. Uh, or you have Tiger Woods, great comeback story. You have uh, football. He's got ladies, bottom left-hand corner, Man City ladies. Great victory. They're in trouble there. I think it was 2-1 down. Then it's 2-2 on 89. 93rd minute. It's 3-2. They win. You have the mighty Liverpool. They were down and out against feeble Barcelona. Four goals down, and yet they succeed. And then for no reason at all, you have a wonderful victory yesterday. I just wanted to put the picture in. The mighty England. Who saw it coming? Once in a generation event, sometimes you have that in sport as well. But you have these sporting upsets, which is why we enjoy watching live sport of whatever description, whatever ball shape, no matter how many on the team. But John doesn't like surprises. Verse 3, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus responds in sentence 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. It's a really strange response from King Jesus. Jesus, are you the one who should, that I've been waiting for? And Jesus responds, sentence six, blesses the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Now, the, the real word there, the, the original word is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandalized or scandalous. From what John is hearing from his prison cell, we know that from chapter four, verse 12, from what he's hearing, he's thinking, I don't know if you're the right one or there should be another one. Are you just a forerunner and there's someone else that God is going to send? And he's struggling. He's scandalized. He's not just disagreeing what Jesus is saying, perhaps his ethical teaching from uh, Matthew 5 to 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus, the reports he's getting back from his online entry system, the report from the scouts of what Jesus is saying and doing, it tr it's troubling John the Baptist. And he's not just disagreeing, he's, there's a scandal. He's disturbed in his spirit. And throughout chapter 11, Jesus has to deal with people that uh, are upset by what he's saying and doing. Great people, lowly people, who are upset by what he's saying and doing. And as we listen into these first 15 verses to the upset that is in John the Baptist's spirit, Jesus responds to say, go and tell John the Baptist what's happening. Go and tell John the Baptist who's hearing the message. Go and tell John the Baptist what I'm doing. Because it's about the poor, it's about the violent, and it's about the least. The poor, the violent, and the least. Let's look at all three. Number one, the poor. I want you to go and tell John the Baptist, verse 5, sentence 5, who are the people who are hearing my words and what's happening to them? Look at sentence 5. Go back and tell John what you see, what you hear. These people are being healed, but in particular the poor are having the good news preached to them. So go, go and tell John the Baptist that these lowly people, these, these people who are on the bottom of society, 
go and tell them what they're hearing. And you can see from sentence five, it's the word, they're having the good news preached to them. Now, now it's nearly Christmas, yeah? And at Christmas, you always have this definition in the Christmas carol service that good news is a message that's received. It's a message of proclamation. And it sounds just like it's a Bible word, and it's not. Let me prove it to you. So there was once uh, Caesar Augustus. He was Octavian, Octavius, and he was renamed as Caesar Augustus. And there was a great uh, celebration. There was fanfare and trumpets. There was a red carpet and crowds who were cheering his name because there is a historic proclamation that you can read of. And it says this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's good news. There's a new king on the throne. There's a new Caesar who's in power. And his name is Caesar Augustus. And the trumpets were there. The fanfare was there. Great celebration. Great feasting. Because there was good news of heralding proportions. Go and tell John the Baptist what's happening. The poor and the lowly are having the good news preached to them. But not about Caesar Augustus. This is the good news of what God is doing in his son. Christianity is so different from every other religion because it's a relationship with Jesus. Christianity is so different from every other philosophy or ethical framework because it's good news that's received. It's God getting involved in human history. Every other framework or philosophy is it's, it's to do with what we must do rather than what is done. And that's why the angels at Jesus' birth can herald his arrival. Because God is now involved. It's not us getting to God. It's God arriving on the pages of history. It's not a salvation that has to be learned like every uh, philosophy or religious teacher saying, come into history and learn what you must do to save yourself. Follow my path. Jesus says, no, you need to be rescued. You can't save yourself. And so God gets involved in the pages of history So we don't have to reach up to him, he reached down to us. It's a historic event. Jesus was a real person. And that's something that John the Baptist, people are beginning to hear. Don't be upset, don't be scandalized by what is said. But this is the gospel that will be proclaimed at Jesus' birth. This is what people are hearing. Jesus, the Son of God, will come into human history. He died for the place, the sin of the human race, on a place outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And so there will be a rescue mission, but that's not all. Look at sentence five. It's not just the poor who hear about good news, a declaration. What else is happening? See who's receiving the good news. Sentence five. It's, it's not those who are in positions of power and authority who understand this good news. Sentence 5, it says, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, and by the way, the dead are raised. (laughs) Just a small side point. Do you hear the challenge here? It's not the privileged liberal elite who understand the gospel. They may have control of the airwaves. They may own the BBC. They may have lots of influence on the internet. But who is it that understands the received revelation of God most clearly? Sentence 5 says, it's the poor. It's not the privileged. It's not the educated. It's not the cultured. It's not the literate. It's the lowly. It's the needy. 
One of the great challenges of living in Epsom and Yule is that we are so jolly self-sufficient. We're so respectable. Maybe there's one income coming into a family, maybe there's two. But we do have so much more than the people around us, so much more globally. We are millionaires, so to speak. But there's a great danger when we look at our own resources. We are self-sufficient. And when we're self-sufficient, we think we are self-reliant. And we can put ourselves up and out of any trouble we find ourselves in. The poor do not have that issue. The poor understand grace at a deep level. The wealthy, affluent, self-sufficient people never, ever can. And that's one of the reasons why, generally, the gospel has exploded in areas of poverty. Sentence 4 and 5. Go back and tell John the Baptist, with this troubling in his spirit, show and tell them what is happening. It's the poor that are receiving the gospel. Religion always leaves the poor out. Religion always leaves the lowly and the needy out. Ethics, philosophy, it's for cultured people, people of learning and reading, people of education and standing. But the gospel is completely different. The gospel is for the lowly and the needy and the poor. Look at who I have, sentence four and five. Look who's attracted, look who's lifted up, look who's raised up. It's the poor, it's the leper, it's the poor, it's the blind, it's the poor and it's the deaf, it's the poor. Go and tell John the Baptist that. Not just the physically poor, not just the financially poor, it's the spiritually poor. Anyone who can see their spiritual poverty, no matter how much they've got in their bank account, that's who we're talking about. It is that, but it's also more than that. It is also the financially poor, the needy. How are we getting on in that regard? An affluent suburb of London. Do we have a heart that Jesus had for those who are in need? Follow the money. It's the easiest way to find out what we truly worship. How are we doing with that? Do we have gospel priorities of giving money away in, in significant portions of our income for gospel endeavours, word, but also deed? Both are always together in the ministry of Jesus. Go and tell John the Baptist that, because Jesus has come. It's the poor. Look at the violence, secondarily, the violence. Now, where do I get that word from? It's in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, it's the way of Jesus saying now in the last few years, the kingdom of heaven has been, you may have forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. The ESV and the version we had projected up says violence or violencing is the literal translation. The kingdom of God is violencing. What does that mean? That's kind of clunky uh, English. But I put it to you, if you had three people with three different translations there would be three different versions of this sentence. It's very hard to translate. What does it mean? The kingdom of God is doing violence. Violencing. It at least means this. Two points. When the kingdom of God, when Jesus' rule and reign comes into a person's life, it's not like going to Ikea. When you go to Ikea, you will do very well to come out not having spent £100. If you do that, tell me your secret. I need to learn it. You come out with meatballs thinking, why did I eat those? And you come out with £100 worth of stuff to go somewhere in your house. When you become a Christian, it is not like buying into a, a religious framework or system produced by Ikea like a billy bookcase. One of their top sellers is a billy bookcase or the poang chair. 
you put it together, you have the alum key injury that every IKEA constructor can relate to. And you just have this new piece of furniture in your home. And it's there, and you have to move something to create space. But there's the Billy, there's the Poang. Following Jesus is not like going to IKEA. For you animal lovers out there, I'm not one of you, I'm afraid. You know that well. But if you have a, a cat, I'm going to get a cat, I'm going to get a dog. Or you need to clear some space, you need to get some stuff. You need to take out massive insurance in case something happens to the animal, the little blighter. And there's the cat, there's the dog, and you move stuff around, and it changes your life a little bit, a little bit more than a Billy or a Poang. <coughs> Following Jesus is not like going to Ikea, it's not like having a new pet. Following Jesus is violent in your life. It's not even like going on an adventure. There's a difference in literature and films between an adventure and a quest. An adventure, you go somewhere and you come back and you're the same person. But a quest, when you go on a quest, you go somewhere and you don't know if you'll come back. It's a completely different thing. Following Jesus is violent in your heart and life. It's not just moving the furniture around. It's complete change when you follow Jesus. It's not like I need just to add an experience to my life, so I'll, I'll go to church for a bit and see how that works out for me. My kids need to go to church, so I'll go to church for a bit. It will do them good. What harm can it do? It could change them completely. Because following Jesus is violent. When Jesus comes into your life, because of who he is, that's the key, Everything changes. New goals, new priorities, new passions. New things to do with your time. On Saturday afternoon, who would put something on for 60 hot, sweaty kids? We will. Why? Because we love Jesus, and so everything is his. Nothing is off limits, or it shouldn't be. The kingdom of God is violencing. It's forcefully advancing. That's not talking about a crusade. That's talking about changing someone's heart. It's not an adventure. It's a quest, but there's another side. The kingdom of God suffers violence. It's like surgery. I told this story last year. I had a growth on my uh, lower eyelid, so I went to the wonderful NHS. They put uh, duct tape, basically, on my head, and they, they, they strapped my top eyelid to the back of my head. It felt like that anyway. But it was some surgical tape. Let's call it duct tape for uh, illustrations purposes. And then the one thing I wanted to do which was to shut my eye, I could not do. And the scalpel was coming towards my eye with a huge surgical light above me as I lay flat on my back, hopeless and helpless and hapless. And then the, the, the scalpel came and sliced off with brilliant accuracy, thankfully, this growth that was in my eyelid. NHS were absolutely brilliant. Then I drove home. Don't tell anyone about that, because I had these wonderful um, antiseptic or uh, anesthetic eye drops but it made everything go a bit blurry as I drove home safely. <laughs> when the kingdom of God comes into your life, it's not like buying furniture, everything changes. When the kingdom of God comes into your life, it's like surgery as well. What do I mean? Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not already experienced himself. Jesus, when he died on the cross for the sins of the world, from this wonderful rescue mission, from heaven to earth, he experienced the violence of death, but as you get to know him, you experience the violence of life. Anything he asks of you is too small. Nothing is too great. The gospel never leaves us as it finds us. And can I put it to you that our heavenly father is a good, good father and he's the best surgeon you've ever seen. He deals with us gently, 
but it, it also can be violently, but it's always skillfully. It's always carefully. It's always for our good. Because the gospel never leaves us as it finds us. And one of the ways that you've understood the gospel of Jesus is not that you leave church comfortable. You can tell when God is dealing with someone because they're agitated. They're frustrated. They're a bit bothered. They're a bit worried. Sometimes they're upset. That's a good thing. Because God is good, but he's also lion-like, says C.S. Lewis. Sentence 12. The kingdom of heaven has been violently advancing and violent men take hold of it. It's the poor and this violent uprising that happens in every human heart, not just moving furniture, it's absolute change of ownership because of who Jesus is. It's the poor, it's the violent. Thirdly, finally, the gospel comes to the least. Tell John the Baptist this as well. Sentence 11, verse 11. There is none born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. But I say to you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now we get to the very centre of who it is that will meet Jesus personally. In a sense, you need to take a step back and look at sentence 4 to 15 as a whole. I don't know, sentence 3, are you the Messiah? Are you the real thing? Remember that ideal? And then Jesus quotes not from Isaiah 40 that Dave read from, but from Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 6, you read this. Let me just read some words to you. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord, onto verse 10, will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah is looking into the future by the Spirit of God and says, God will send someone who will do all of that. And when you see him, the kingdom is advancing violently. Do you notice as you heard that, that the, the, these things will overcome you? They, they will kind of overtake you, like in the fast lane. You don't have to go looking for this. It's there nipping at your heels. God's going to do something. And then, having quoted this, go and tell John that. Jesus starts to talk about John the Baptist as an, this Elijah figure. Did you pick that up? And you think, why are you mixing your metaphors of Isaiah quotations and then Elijah? That's 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19. That territory after this wonderful victory of God against the opponents of God at uh, Mount Carmel. You've then got a spiritual depression, shall we say, in 1 Kings 19 of Elijah, this prophet of God. And uh, Elijah was working on a kind of a binary framework, a two-way understanding of good and bad. God, I want you to smite the wicked. I want you to zap them. I want you to destroy them. Kapow. Fire from heaven stuff that he's just exhibited. Do that for all the wicked and I want you to rescue and save me. Why aren't you going to judge the wicked? Why aren't you going to bring down fire on everyone? And then God says to Elijah these famous words, go outside and I'm going to pass you by. Elijah went outside and a great wind came by and the Lord was not in the wind. A great earthquake came by and the Lord was not in the earthquake. A great fire came by, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then there was a gentle whisper 
and it was the Lord. What in the world was God saying to Elijah in that revelation, that theophany, when he exposed himself in his glory and might and power, but in a different way to Elijah? I think he was saying this. I will come not in power. I will come not in strength. I will come not in judgment. I will come in a very, very lowly way, in a small way, in a silent way, in a unique, individual way. Because in Isaiah 35, before verse 5 comes verse 4. That's why you go to Bible college to learn that. Before God opening eyes and ears, before he's talking about the, the deer's leaping, what happens before that is God saying, I will come in justice and I will pour out my vengeance and retribution. And you're saying, well, how does that work? How will God come in his justice how will he do away with the wicked? And how will all this cool stuff happen about lame people walking and blind people seeing and deaf people hearing? How do those two things come together? Thinks John the Baptist as he's in prison in chapter 4. Are you the one who's going to come or not? How are you going to deal with judgment but also make the promises of God come true? Verse 12. Elijah, you want a religion, you want a salvation for the good against the bad. But if I came down in my justice, I'd win the battle, but I'd lose you. I'd lose you. If I come down to consume the wicked, you'd be one of them. We'd all be one of them. There'd be no one left. But I want to rescue you. So I need to come down, not in my might of judgment and justice. I need to come down in a very lowly way. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to take all that justice upon myself. And I'm going to do that on the cross. And as I do that, I can save you. And I can save all those like you. It's going to come down on me. But notice as we close verse 11, Jesus speaks of John the Baptist in a very unique way. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, but, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that is an amazing statement. John the Baptist is top of the tree, first in his class, first in a whole generation. There's no one greater than him. But Jesus says, you can be the most moral person, the most decent person, the most church-attending person. You can read all the right books. You can have your own righteousness, your own enoughness, your own good workness. But you could be the biggest moral failure, the lowliest, the least, the wickedest. And if you stand in my righteousness rather than your own, verse 11 says, you're greater even than John the Baptist. It's not about standing in your own righteousness. It's wearing the royal robes that you don't deserve of Jesus. There's an old hymn that put it like this. Jesus, your blood, your righteousness... My beauty are, my glorious dress. I don't know what websites you've clicked on. I don't know what beds you've slept in. I don't know where you've been even this week in your mind or physically. I don't know what you're tempted to do. We're three days away from absolute disaster, any one of us. But Jesus says, no matter what you've done and where you've been, if you stand in my righteousness, verse 11 is true of you. You are greater even than he.
the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Do you know who you are this morning? Morally respectable, morally irrespectable. Jesus came for you and for the poor and for the violent and for the least. Let's pray.